Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I don't know about you, but packing is the least, my least favorite part of traveling. The reason that I hate packing is because I am a chronic overpacker. It doesn't matter if... <laughs> I get an amen from my wife. <laughs> it doesn't matter if I'm gone for two days or if I'm gone for seven. I'm going to have a suitcase full of stuff that I might need, that I might need. It's, a, it's kind of a security thing for me. I know that I'm probably going to spill coffee on my shirt, and it's, it feels good for me to have, like, I don't know, three or four extra backups just in case. There are times when this kind of Boy Scout mentality of always being prepared is a good thing when we're traveling. However, there's some journeys that it's not really a good thing, at least to have more than what you need. If you're going hiking, you don't want to carry 20 extra pounds if you're going on a 20-mile hike into the woods, do you? It's only going to weigh you down, and it's going to wear you out. When God calls us and sends us out on a mission, we have faith that God will properly equip us and pro properly give us what we need. You know, as a father, if I send my kids out to the store to buy bread or ice cream or something like that, I'm going to make sure that they have exactly what they need. I'm going to make sure that they have enough money and that they have all that they need to accomplish the task. And I believe it's only infinitely more so with our Heavenly Father. But there's, a, there's a, another side to this truth, which is that sometimes the things that God equips us with are not always the things that we think we should be equipped with, or we think it is sometimes not enough. Think of Gideon in the Bible. God raises up Gideon to go and defeat the, the Midianites. And so Gideon assembles an army of 32,000 men, and God says, Nah, that's too many. And then he begins this pruning process, and by the time he's done, he only has 300 left over. But as the story goes, we find that that's exactly what he needs. Gideon had thought he needed 32,000 men. Talk about overpacking. God does this often, right? And the reason why God does this for us is that God wants us to trust in him and trust in him alone, not in ourselves not in our strength, not in our ability to gather resources. God wants us to trust in Him and be faithful to His calling. God never leaves us insufficiently resourced. Right? God knows exactly what we need in order to accomplish His mission in the world, and He knows that anything more or anything other than what He gives us is only going to be a burden to us and is only going to weigh us down. I believe this is one of the great truths that we see set before us in the scripture passages that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 6, and we're going to look at this passage that Fred read just a minute ago where Jesus calls the 12 and sends them out on mission. Now, it's a short passage, and, but what's striking to me is that there's so much emphasis placed on what to take and what not to take. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 6, and, and, I, and I pray that as we look at this passage, that we'll learn some important truths for our own mission in the world and for our own discipleship in Christ. So, so turn with me to Mark chapter 6, but before we dive in, let, let me say this as a preface. 
Mark chapter 6 is not a missions strategy for the church. It is not a, thanks be to God, right? <laughs> it, this is a particular call for a, for a very specific people, for the 12 apostles. It's for a very specific time. This is pre-cross, this is pre-resurrection, this is early in Jesus' ministry, and it's for a specific place. It's, it's for Israel. In fact, in Matthew and Luke's account, we see um, in particularly there that it's a very localized event. But I do believe that there are some important, um, that there's some very important continu- continuity, sorry, between this event and later church mission, because I believe that what we're going to see this morning is some foreshadowings and even some foretastes of the mission of the church that will take place post-resurrection and post-Pentecost. And so read along with me. We're going to start in the second half of verse 6 in chapter 6, and it says this, and Jesus went among the villages teaching. Now, your Bible might have that particular sentence broken out or might have a heading after, after it. Um, technically, I, I'm convinced that it goes with the section that follows because as we're going to see is that what Jesus is doing is that he sends his apostles out to do the very same thing that they have been watching him doing and to do what he is doing. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus has been rejected at Nazareth, and so he leaves and he goes to preach in all the villages that are surrounding. So the question we need to get clear on here at the beginning is, well, what is he teaching? What is he teaching? In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, what we're told is that Jesus begins his ministry by proclaiming the gospel of God and saying that the time is fulfilled and that the kingdom of God is at hand and has come or has come near. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist had preached a similar message of repentance because of the nearness of the kingdom. And this message is always the focus of Jesus' preaching and Jesus' teaching, that the kingdom is at hand or literally has come near. Or we could even say the kingdom of heaven is now. And the reason why the kingdom of heaven has come near is because the king has come near. See, in Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And where the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. So in the process of going through the villages, teaching, what Jesus does is he, he calls the twelve. Now that's an important word, that he calls them. Because the word for call is really an invitation to come near. It's, a, it's an invitation to come near. He's not sending a text. He's not sending an email and say, hey, I want you to go out and do something. When he calls them, he brings them near. It's the same word that we see in Ephesians where God calls the Gentiles to come near. And that's important because we need to know that before Jesus ever sends us out, he always brings us near. And it's from within that place of intimacy that God, call, that God sends us out. And here Jesus, he calls the 12, and then he sends them out. And this is actually a fulfillment of something that we see back in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 14, it says that Jesus initially appointed the 12 so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. And so in chapter 6, we're seeing the fulfillment of that. Now, 
I don't want to bore you with word studies, but there's at least one more word I need to point out, and that's this word, apostoline. It's the word for sending out. It's the word from where we get our word, apostle. That's why we call the 12 the apostles, because they are the sent out ones. What is an apostle? An apostle is one who, who carries a message or is a, an authorized representative of a king or of a ruling authority. And the messenger, the messenger is sent out as one who speaks on behalf of the king and carries his message. In fact, the words of the apostles are actually not their own. And so the 12, they're sent out to carry the same message of the nearness of the kingdom that Jesus had been preaching all along. And here's another truth, that as representatives of Jesus, in them, the kingdom of heaven is as near in them as it would be as if Jesus himself was present, because they're his representatives. And that's a crucial truth, because every week, we stand up here and we always say that we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And what we're saying is that we believe that we stand in the tradition of these first apostles, these first sent out ones, and that we too are a church sent out as representatives of Jesus, carrying the message of the kingdom, and that in Jesus, the kingdom is a present reality. And as his apostolic church, the presence presence of the kingdom is in us because the king is with us. That's a wonderful truth as we go about our life, but it's also a call for us to be sure that we're reevaluating our life and our life together so that when people see us, they see the kingdom, and when people hear us, they hear the gospel. And so when Jesus sends out the 12, he equips them. And he equips them with his authority, specifically, and that authority is over unclean spirits. Now, we're going to come back to this idea of Jesus' authority, so kind of bookmark that for just a second, but I think before we get into what that authority is, we need to look at everything else that Jesus tells his apostles to either take or not to take. So look with me at verse 8. It says, Jesus charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And any place that will not receive you and that they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus tells them to take a staff, sandals, and only one tunic with a belt. And as a chronic overpacker, I'm very glad that this is not a call for for us. Thankfully, Jesus does not call us to to walk around dressed as they did. In fact, Jesus gives them very specific instructions about what to take and what not to take. And that's because of the type of journey that he's sending them out on, right? When, When we take a journey, it is the trip itself that determines what we bring. If I'm going to the mountains to go skiing, I'm definitely going to take something different than if I'm going to the beach to go swimming. So it's important for us to get an understanding of what's going on in this passage by asking this question. What kind of mission is this? What kind of mission is this? What exactly is Jesus sending these 12 out to do? We know that he's not just sending them out to go be beggars. That's not what he's doing. So what exactly does Jesus have in mind here? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. 
Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, what we find is we find the story of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, Israel is in captivity in Egypt, and God is about to send the angel of death to pass through the land and kill the firstborn of every family because of Egypt's refusal to obey God's commands that through Moses they need to release Israel. And so what does God do? God instructs them to take a spotless lamb, to kill it, to paint its blood on their doorposts, which will protect them from God's wrath. They're also to eat the lamb. That's, a, that's something that I don't want us to miss. While the rest of Egypt is experiencing God's consequences for disobeying God's commands, God's people are enjoying a table fellowship. But they're to eat it in haste. Right? They're to eat it in haste because once the angel of death passes through the land, they will be released and they will set on this journey that we call the Exodus. Right? And the Exodus is the defining moment for Israel. It's the defining moment for Israel as God's people whom he has brought out of slavery. Chapter 12, verse 11 says this, In this manner you shall eat this lamb, with your belt fastened, with sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And so, when Israel begins this journey, they then go out and they don't have enough food, and we know that God provides for them manna from heaven. So here's what's going on. These 12 apostles, and 12 is symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 apostles are sent out to preach that the kingdom of God is near. And what they are wearing specifically becomes a very visible and prophetic sign that a new exodus is about to take place. You see, at this point in time, Israel is, at this point in time in Israel, there's this general belief that they are actually still in exile, right? They have come back out of Babylonian captivity, but even though they're in their land, they are exiled, or they're, they're under Roman oppression, right? They know that they were exiled initially because of their sins and because of their infidelity to God's covenant, and so they've been longing for a Messiah who will come and conquer their enemies and release them from Roman oppression and release or reestablish David's throne, and that would be a sign to them of God's favor upon them once again. And so they were longing for this, and so these 12, they went from villages, they went from village to village, and all who had ears to hear and eyes to see, they didn't miss, they didn't miss this, but they received it. They, didn't, they saw that a new exodus was about to take place, that Israel was once again to be released from her captivity, and they needed to be prepared. And so that's why Jesus instructs them to wear what they wear and to, to take what they take, because Jesus is proclaiming that his kingdom was about to break in and to release his people from all the kingdoms of the world that would enslave them. And so I'm convinced when we read chapter, Mark chapter 6 that it's highly symbolic of the Exodus account and that a new Exodus is about to take place. However, there's one aspect that in Mark chapter 6 that's not spell out, spelled out because I think only Jesus would have understood this and nobody else would have had the categories to, to, to see this. And it's this. A new exodus is only possible if there is a Passover lamb. 
A new exodus is only possible if there's a Passover lamb, and we know that Jesus will become that Passover lamb who is sacrificed for us once for all time upon the cross. And he will eventually become the fulfillment of the Passover and the one sacrifice that will end all sacrifices. And that it'll be his blood that's poured out on us, poured out on the cross that will save us from death, and it'll be his blood that will take away the sins of the world. And he'll rise again, overcoming the grave and lead and lead uh, and lead to victory a host of captives when he establishes victory for Israel and for all nations and brings us all into one kingdom, and we can experience his kingdom and his liberation. But there's one question that I want to press into a little bit more. Um, This new exodus that was proclaimed to Israel then and that we as the Gentile nations are experiencing now, what is it a liberation from? What are we set free from? What I want to suggest to you is that we are set free from all the things that hold this world and our souls captive, and that is evil and that is sin. Friends, we are fallen people and we are broken people who in Adam were subject to death because of our tendencies to always rebel against God. But in Jesus, for those of us who, are, who have faith in Christ and his cross and in his resurrection, we have a real victory over the power of sin in our lives. And we have a real hope for ultimate victory in the age to come. Now, yes, sin might still rear its ugly head in our lives, but we're not held captive to it. We're not held captive to it if we are captive to Christ. There's another thing that we're liberated from, and that's the power of evil, the power of Satan and the power of unclean spirits, right? As we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, over and over, time and time again, wherever Jesus goes, he has to cast out demons, We see him doing it over and over and over. In fact, in chapter 3, he's even accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan himself, to which he replies, well, that doesn't make sense because a a house divided against itself will never stand. And then he says in in verse 27 of chapter 3, he says, look, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so what Jesus is saying in in that passage is that the strong man in that particular parable is Satan, and that Jesus is the only one who is able to bind him, and therefore only Jesus is the one who can plunder his house. Now, what would be in the house of a strong man that would need to be plundered? Well, it's us. It's humans. It's humanity who is held captive in their sin by the deceiver. And it's Jesus who sets us free. In fact, all of his miracles and all of his healings and all of his exhortations are signs that point to the fact that his kingdom is breaking in and overthrowing all the powers that would hold us captive. Jesus has come to set us free. And he ultimately accomplishes this on on the cross and in the resurrection. And the strong man is bound and his captives are brought out into a new exodus that leads to a new life. And that is why Jesus equips his 12 apostles with his authority, and it's exactly what they need. And his authority is this authority over unclean spirits, right? And if their mission is to proclaim this new exodus and the liberation that is found only in Jesus, 
who is king of the kingdom of God, then the only thing that they need is authority to drive out the spirits that are holding Israel and all humanity captive. And all of those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive it will experience this liberation from evil and which will bring repentance and healing and freedom from evil. In verse 12, chapter 6, it says this, And the twelve went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick, and he healed them. That's a great description of what happens when the kingdom of God comes near. When the kingdom of God breaks in, evil is conquered and evil is cast out. However, you can be certain that evil will always put up a fight. Evil will always put up a fight, but it is a futile fight. Friends, we can see this very, very clearly in certain examples throughout the world, particularly in places like Nigeria. We've talked a lot about um, one of our own Anglican archbishops, uh, Ben, ben Kwashi, who's been uh, attacked multiple times. And we've prayed for the Nigerian Christians who are under heavy, heavy persecution. And so I continue to, to encourage us to continue to pray for them. But we can pray for them because we know and they know that Jesus is king, and that means that in the end, the gates of hell will not prevail. In fact, I've actually been reading up a whole bunch of reports on the things that are going on in Nigeria, and I want to share with you a couple lines from this one report that I found extremely encouraging, particularly about Archbishop Kawashi. And it says this, it says, the latest attack which occurred on the Archbishop on June 30th was the fourth attack on the Archbishop. He's been attacked, his church has been burned down, his family has been hurt. And it goes on, it says this. It says, each time the attackers come, Archbishop Kwashi says, it just makes him more resolved to preach the gospel and to proclaim the Christian message. And then it goes on and it says, and since the attacks began, since the attacks began, the Archbishop and his wife have fostered hundreds of of orphans. And then it goes on and talks about all the things that they still did, even in the face of the attack. And friends, I want to suggest that that is evidence in what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven breaks in and evil is conquered and victory is proclaimed. When evil, or when the kingdom breaks in, there is restoration, both in body and in soul. You see, every instance of healing is just a foretaste of the coming kingdom which is defined by resurrection. We still live in this, we still live in, in this world and our bodies are wasting away and death is still a, a, a reality. But in Jesus' resurrection, we have hope in the fulfillment of this new exodus which is defined by resurrection. And finally, when the kingdom breaks in and evil is cast out with all of its attempts to bring disorder and chaos and division and captivity to this world, what we find is repentance. What we find is repentance. The 12 were given authority to cast out spirits, and then we are told that they preached that people everywhere should repent. I'm convinced that those two things go hand in hand, right? Repentance is rightly understood as, as a turning away, but too often we think of repentance simply as not doing something. If I repent, I'm just going to just stop doing something. I want to suggest that that's not the full understanding of repentance. 
what repentance actually means is not just turning away from something, but it is turning to someone. And that specifically, specific someone is, is Christ, right? And so when, when the 12 went out and preached repentance, it wasn't just, hey, you need to stop doing bad things. It was come to Jesus, come away from the things that hold you captive and come near to the one, to this Jesus and to his kingdom. Because only in Jesus and only in his kingdom can we find freedom and wholeness and restoration and forgiveness. In other words, salvation. And so what I want to suggest to you this morning is, friends, that we are living in this time of this new exodus. Christ has been crucified. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This is a truth that we hold on to. We hold on to the truth that at the Great Commission, post-resurrection, Jesus said this. He said, all authority in heaven, on, in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always. And so now we, as an, as an apostolic church, I believe that we too have Jesus's authority because we have Jesus's very presence and Jesus's very spirit with us. And we can continue to call, to call people to be united to Christ, to, <clears throat> excuse me, to turn to him and to find healing and to find wholeness and find salvation. And that's why Jesus equipped his 12 with his authority because they found out that that was the only thing that they needed on their journey. And friends, Praise be to God that I believe that Christ has also equipped us with his authority so that when evil and, and all the things that cause division and sin in our lives rear its ugly head, we have authority in Jesus' name to cast it out because we find victory only in Jesus, and we praise God for that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.